your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to uh, read, we're going to read from verse 13 uh, through chapter 3, verse 5. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, is where we're going to read together from God's Word this morning. So I hope you'll take your Bibles and turn there with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, of course, you can take uh, the one in the Pew Bible home with you. And if you're using that this morning, it's on page 1191. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is 1191. Now let's read from 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct our hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Uh, let's pray together this morning, shall we? Father, we come before you today and we are thankful to you for the glad gift that this day is to us. Uh, we receive it with even greater joy because of the brilliance of the sun shining in that blue sky. Oh, Father, this, this fall in particular, you have blessed us with just delightful weather and we are thankful to you for your kindness, kindness that we don't deserve Lord, we're mindful of the fact that you send rain on the just and on the unjust, and uh, we ask you to send some to us. Uh, we are behind, though we have enjoyed the sun. Lord, we need uh, the rain as well. We ask for your kindness. You command the clouds, uh, and this is no small thing to ask you to do for us. Lord, uh, we acknowledge your supremacy and your greatness and we repeat with the Isaiah the prophet that the nations are a drop in the bucket to you, that all of the countries of the earth are merely grains of sand on your scales. Lord, we acknowledge your supremacy over all peoples and all nations. But today, Father, we come before you in particular asking you for mercy on our own. Uh, this country that is ours and that we uh, love, and that we receive as a good gift from you. Father, we, we pray because of the elections that are coming on Tuesday, and we pray that you would show mercy upon us. Father, we are not united as a congregation in what mercy in this election would be for us. Uh, we are grateful to you that our citizenship is in heaven. Father, we uh, acknowledge if you can put in a church Jews and Gentiles, surely you can put in a church Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and Green Party members and 
whatever other variety there is, many of them. Lord, we pray that um, you would enable us to vote by faith and with the earnest expectation that you will uh, um, do what is right. You are the king of all the earth and what you declare will be right. Uh, We want to vote uh, wisely, prudently, shrewdly, carefully as an act of love for our neighbors. And and I ask that you would help us to be faithful in that regard. Lord, we're thankful to you this morning for Madeline Stewart. Oh, what a great gift. What a big gift she is, Father. We're thankful to you for her. Uh, You uh, sustained Monica through this uh, period of pregnancy Uh, and uh, we are thankful to you for this uh, safe and happy delivery. What a blessing you have given to Jimmy and Monica, and and to our church too as well, this uh, eighth baby born in our congregation in these uh, 11 months of 2016. Oh, what a blessing. Uh, We acknowledge and we thank you for your good gifts to us. Make us grateful people, we pray. We pray all these things together in the name of our Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 contains for us four paragraphs that remind us that Christian people pray for one another. That's what we do. That's not very surprising, is it? Missionaries Missionaries like Paul pray for churches. Churches like the church in Thessalonica pray for missionaries like Paul. That's what these chapters, these paragraphs that we looked at, it's what they are. What might surprise you uh, about reading these chapters, uh, these paragraphs, though, is what Christians pray for each other, how we pray, or the requests that we have. These paragraphs teach us that Christians pray for one another, that they wouldn't quit. Does that surprise you? It might surprise you that, that, that Paul would, would, would pray this way, because this temptation to quit following Jesus is not a temptation that we talk about very often. It's almost as if we don't want to acknowledge that this is a possibility that there would be somebody who would be a follower of Jesus who would walk away from the faith. I mean, think about it. We we believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that he's the bread of life, that he's the living water, that he's the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he might have the supremacy. We believe that about Jesus, and it's hard to think of anybody who knows that, that they would walk away from him. Why would you do that? It's certainly not because of him. And what do we do about our theology if we talk about people who quit on the faith? Uh, We ask this question all the time. If you walk away from Jesus, are you walking away? Is that a sign that you were never really a follower of his in the first place? Or is it a sign that you have lost your status as a Christian? Followers of Jesus have been talking about that for hundreds of years. I'm not even sure we, wanna, we don't want to talk about this temptation. The Apostle Paul, though, was not hesitant to talk about the temptation to quit. Uh, even in these paragraphs that we read, he's concerned about the Thessalonians and how their errant belief about the day of the Lord, you remember the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is that great day that is coming in the future, and it will be marked by judgment on the earth and, and uh, um, the, the highlight of it will be the return of the Lord Jesus. 
The Thessalonians thought that the day of the Lord had already come, that somehow Jesus had returned and they had missed it. And, and they were wrong about that. And Paul was concerned that, that their being wrong about this was unsettling them, unsettling them to the point of where they would give up on following Jesus. Maybe he thinks that, that um, the Thessalonians will believe that Christianity just doesn't work or can't deliver on its claims if if Jesus has already come back and this is not what Paul told us, what else did Paul tell us that's not going to come true? What else have we misunderstood? What else are we maybe not worthy of if we missed out on the, the coming of Jesus? In, in this chapter, it's interesting that Paul's concerned about the Thessalonians and they're giving up because of how their wrong understanding of the day of the Lord is unsettling them. That's not the, certainly the only reason that followers of Jesus face this temptation. Many, many years ago, John Piper preached a sermon and his great concern is that to young adults, he preached a sermon that his great concern was that their continued falling into sexual immorality would, would cause them to walk away from the faith. They'd be so discouraged. 30 years ago, Phil Yancey wrote a book called Disappointment with God. Uh, Yancey's a fine writer. Maybe some of you read this book. He tries to figure out why is it that, that Christians are so much face this temptation to walk away? And he tried to answer three questions that we asked. The questions are, is God unfair? Is God silent? And is God hidden? Where is he? When have you been tempted to ask those questions? I didn't ask if you have been tempted to ask those questions. Instead I said, When? Because I think it's something that everybody here faces at times. I think one of the most uh, common reasons that people quit following Jesus is that the promises of the gospel don't seem to be bearing any fruit in their lives. Something that you expect to happen, a new sense of purpose, a, a healing in a relationship, an ability to be content, some deliverance from some sin pattern has not yet come to be, and it's just so disappointing and so it induces so much hopelessness. We're going to talk about quitting for the next two weeks. Actually, we're going to talk about persevering for the next two weeks. And I want to unfold for you Paul's arguments as to why you should persevere. Actually, there's two subjects in this first set of verses we're going to look at. Today we're going to look at verses 13 to 17. Next week we're going to look at chapters 3, verses 1 through 5. But today... Two things that I want you to see in this text. First of all, Paul's going to talk talks to us here about what it means to persevere. What does perseverance look like? What does he expect the Thessalonians to do? And then second, we're going to talk about his arguments for why they should persevere. Why you should not quit following Jesus. So what does he expect us to do and why you should keep doing it? And let's start by talking about what it means to persevere. And Paul tells us this in four verbs that appear in this text in verses 15 and verse 17. In verse 15, Paul has two of them. He, look, he's just his command. It's very clear and easy to see. So then, brothers and sisters, here's the first verb, stand firm. Stand firm. Uh, the emphasis of this command, stand firm, is on the solidity of the stand. Stand and don't move. Some of you have seen the new parking posts that are out back that are uh, designed to protect our children when they're playing uh, on the new playset that will come sometime and, and the Gaga pit. That those posts are there. They're heavy. They're big posts. I watched. They lowered them into the ground. 
and they kind of dropped them into the ground, oh, those big posts. And they, they poured cement, concrete in around them to keep them there because those posts are supposed to stand firm. They're supposed to keep uh, a moving car from getting into that air. Don't test the theory, but they're suppo- that's what they're designed to do. They're, they're to stand firm. Now, usually when the New Testament uses this command, stand firm, it tells us what to stand firm in or to stand firm on. That actually comes in the second verb in verse 15. He says, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Stand firm and hold fast. Now, this word hold fast, it literally talks about your grip. Get a firm grip and don't let go. Hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Your translation might there say traditions. We're Baptists. We love that word, right? Traditions. It's awesome. Well, sometimes the New Testament isn't too keen on traditions. Sometimes. Paul here, though, is talking about um, the traditional teachings of the apostles, what they taught. We remember that Christianity is a faith that is rooted in ancient teaching, the teaching of the apostles. Um, uh, it's a story that has been told over and over and over again and passed down from generation to generation. It is not a faith for novelty. If you like to make up things, you should not be a Christian. Because what we do is we celebrate, we sing about, we talk about the teachings that have been passed on to. Be as creative as you can in how you teach, but you are not allowed as a Christian to be a teacher in what you teach. Hold on. Verse 15 tells us that perseverance, in part, is a commitment to a set of truths. That's where perseverance really begins, with this commitment to a set of truths. We hold on to them, we repeat them, we celebrate them. That's what we've done over the last several weeks, is we've been reading our doctrinal statement. These are the things that we believe. We're committed to them. Followers of Jesus have believed these things for 2,000 years, and we join our voice in affirmation when we, when we read them in worship. We hold fast in the songs that we sing. We sing truth-soaked songs with truth-shaped words. We sing and we affirm what we believe. It's part of the process of how we encourage one another. We sing together this morning, Come, praise, and glorify God. Why? All those reasons in that song. He's the Father of our Lord. He's redeemed us. He's adopted us. Come, come, remember these things, brothers and sisters, because perseverance is this commitment to this set of truths that we hold together. So that's where perseverance uh, begins in this text, uh, but it continues specifically in verse 17 with uh, uh, this reminder here of these verbs. Uh, Here in verse 15, there was a command, this is what you're supposed to do. Verse 17, here is what Paul wants God to do. And he wants God to do two things, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Perseverance, this text tells us, is something that is both internal and external. Perseverance is internal and external. That's the, the internal part of it comes with the encourage your hearts. May he strengthen your hearts. This internal strengthening. Perseverance does not mean going through the motions, being habituated to the faith. It's an expression of who you really are and what you really love. I wonder how many of you stayed up late on Wednesday night to watch Game 7 of the World Series. Um, I confess I did not. There have only been 37 Game 7s in World Series history. This was an exciting one. It was a long one. 
tie score, extra innings, a rain delay. You had to stay up late to watch this game. But you know what? I bet there was a lot of joy in that perseverance. Wasn't there? People who were, who were wanted to watch the game, they, there, was, there was interest in it. Um, in recent months, I've become familiar with the, the, one of the senators from Nebraska. His name is Ben Sass. He is a faithful follower of Jesus. On Wednesday night, uh, Senator Sass uh, posted online this advice. Wake up your kids and let them watch this game. They will not see something like this anytime soon. It's, get up, watch it, it's, it's, enjoy it. It's, it's perseverance from the heart. Perseverance from the heart. It's internal. But it's also external. Perseverance is external. Paul prays, may God strengthen you in every good deed and word. Perseverance will manifest itself in what you do and in what you say. This verse reminds me of so many other New Testament passages. Think about Hebrews 6. Listen to what it says. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of one of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Keep going, the author of Hebrews says. Or Galatians 6, let us not become weary in in doing good. Remind yourself of that Wednesday nights at 8.20 when you're driving home from Awana. Don't be weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. The New Testament is not afraid to address this issue. It's not too timid to talk about the fact that sometimes followers of Jesus Christ feel like quitting. It's a temptation that the apostles pushed back against explicitly. So what this means then is when temptation comes, it's not abnormal. You're not weird for feeling this way. You're not spiritually subpar for experiencing this temptation. It happens to followers of Jesus, normal followers of Jesus, who lived in Galatia and Thessalonica and Millersville and Conestoga and uh, Willow Street and Lancaster. It happens to normal followers of Jesus. Os Guinness uh, wrote uh, about John Stott. Os Guinness is a, a fine writer and a defender of the faith, a philosopher. And uh, he was, for a time, mentored by John Stott. John Stott was one of the great leaders of uh, the church in the latter part of the 20th century. He died not too long ago. Um, and uh, uh, Oskinus writes about how he visited, he visited him three weeks before he died. Uh, I'll read from what Oskinus says. Um, I asked him, he says, after an unforgettable hour and more of sharing many memories over many years, I asked him how he would like me to pray for him. Lying weakly on his back and barely able to speak, John Stott answered in a hoarse whisper, pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. It's normal for a follower of Jesus, a faithful follower of Jesus, to be thinking like this and to ask that someone would pray for him like this. Pray that I would remain faithful to Jesus. It's a temptation that we face, and it's, it's not abnormal. What that means also, I suppose, is if, if this should be an issue that we can and should help one another through. If this is a normal part of following Jesus, then it also can be a normal part of your discussion in your growth groups or in your accountability groups. 
How do you help someone who's discouraged and wants to quit? How do you help them continue following Jesus faithfully? What do you say to them? Well, let's move on and we're going to talk about why we persevere. So what it means, commitment to this truth, we're going to hold on to it, and it's going to show up inside and outside my life. What, what does Paul argue here in these verses about why we persevere? In short, we persevere because of all that God has done for us. All that God has done for us. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, what, the fact that we persevere because of all that God promises for us. But today we're going to talk about what God has done for us. I want you to think about these verses that we're going to talk about, these concepts that are here, a little bit like the starting blocks in the Christian life. We just watched the Olympics not too long ago. And you saw all those sprinters assume uh, their starting stance with those starting blocks. Uh, those starting blocks are made by the Omega Company. They cost $5,000 a piece. Uh, they are precision-crafted pieces of equipment. Um, older models used to shift a little bit as much as 5 millimeters and the Olympic runners complained about that 5-millimeter shift, so now these are rock solid. In fact, they're designed to hold the force. You can push against them with three times your body weight, and they won't move at all. Uh, the, the, the starting blocks that they used in Rio, they, the starting blocks used to be, that center post used to be 80 millimeters, used to be 8 centimeters, but they reduced it to five, uh, 50 millimeters, 5 centimeters, so that women would be able to assume a more comfortable position. They're that, they're that precisely uh, crafted. Um, here is the starting blocks of, of, the, uh, of a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the foundation. Why are those starting blocks of the Olympics so, so well carefully made? When you're racing and, and the difference between you and, and your competitor may be hundreds of a second, they've got to get you going correctly, precisely. And here is God's precision in how we start following him. Don't quit because of what God has done for us. What has he done? Four things. Number one, he chose you. He chose you. Don't quit because God chose you. Verse 13 says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the church, uh, truth. Now, your translation might say God chose you from the beginning. There's some debate about whether the text should say because God chose you as first fruits or God chose you from the beginning. The two Greek words are so similar there. We're not quite sure what it says. Both of them are true. Paul used the word first fruits a lot. The Thessalonians were among the first believers in the whole world. That could be it. Paul, when often he talks about how God chooses us, his sovereign work in our life, he often compares that to the beginning of time. God chose you from the beginning. Both of those things could be true. What Paul is celebrating here is that God has been at work in the lives of the Thessalonians before even Paul had ever met them. Beyond what Paul can see, beyond what Paul can control, beyond what Paul could experience, God has already been at work in the Thessalonians. Sometimes we struggle with this. This is one of those passages that we come to uh, where we talk about election and predestination and choosing, and we struggle with that sometimes. We have questions. Questions like, how does God's sovereignty relate to our free will, and how is this fair of God and what he's done? But I, I, the Bible doesn't answer all those questions perfectly that we ask, but notice, maybe this will help you, the text roots God's choice in his love. Think about God's 
love. If you're thinking about predestination or choosing and you're not thinking about love, you're not thinking about it biblically. He says, you are loved by the Lord, verse 13. He says in verse 16, God our Father has loved us. You may struggle with this. Maybe it will help you you think just for a minute about our friends and church members who have been involved in international adoption. They start this process. Our church has been generous and kind to pray for and try to help these young couples through the process of international adoption. At some point in time in the process, they get a dossier in the mail, a folder with information in it, and most likely, most often in that dossier, there's a picture of that child that they're going to adopt. Can you imagine opening that folder and seeing that face? (laughs) Moms and dads-to-be, they have been praying about this process. They've been researching it. They've been raising money toward it. And they open it up and there's that face. It doesn't take long for them to be very attached to that face. And, and as they look at that face, they start to think and pray more for that baby more and more and more and more. And, and they love that child. There's a baby or child somewhere in the world that is loved they have no idea who their parents are. If they don't know about these parents and their love, they don't know anything about what the good plans that these good parents have, but they're loved where they are. God loved you before you even existed, before he even knew uh, that you even knew that he was, is. That's, that's so good. Uh, election is rooted in God's love. The text says God chose you as first fruits to be saved. Now here's the direction of this choosing. His election is a rescue operation. It's a saving venture. We're saved from God's wrath, which we deserve because of our sin. We're disobedient rebels. We're alienated from God. We're deserving of his wrath. And he rescues us instead. Now how did Paul know that the Thessalonians were chosen? We'll talk about that in just a minute. But here's a second reason to persevere. Not just because God chose you, but secondly, God ordained the means of your salvation. God chose you first. Secondly, he ordained the means of your salvation. Not just the ends, but the means. The way that you would be saved, that you would be rescued. Now generally, we could talk here about how God chose to reconcile to himself all things through the death of his son. How are we saved by the substitutionary death of Jesus for us? But this passage doesn't mention that. It's about how his death is applied specifically to us. The means by which the the grace of God is applied to us. I want to talk about them. We're going to go over them in reverse order in the text They're in reverse order in the text because they're in forward order of how you experience them. All right? Well, here we go. What means did God use? Number one, he sent the gospel to you. He sent the gospel to you. How do we know that God loved the Thessalonians and chose the Thessalonians? Because he sent Paul to them. Verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel the gospel that we came and preached to you. Think about this. Who did God send to you? Who did God send to you to tell you about the gospel? That, 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 that God would call you to himself through that person. Maybe it's your parents. 
or a Sunday school teacher or an Awana leader or a VBS volunteer. I spoke to someone this week whose sister consistently invited him to church. Come, come and, and hear the gospel. Maybe it was a grandparent or uh, maybe a friend. Who told you? You should really be encouraged by this, I think. Sometimes I talk to people who are filled with doubts. They, does God really love me? Am I really a Christian? One of the signs of God's love is that you have someone to talk to about this. Now imagine a conversation. A man sits down with his elder, one of the elders from church, and he says to an elder, you have to help me. I struggle with whether or not God loves me. I wish you would give me a sign. What could that elder say? Here I am. Here I am. I'm the sign. Our elders would never say anything like that. But you can imagine, isn't that what the text say? Isn't that what it says? Um, God chose you. And he, he, you can tell because he called you to himself through our gospel. The apostle Paul shows up and says, here I am, God loves you, and he's calling you to himself. And the elder says, here I am, you can talk to me. To encourage you and remind you and, and about God's love and God's presence. This is not a small thing, this is not a trivial thing. This is what God does, he sends people, you should receive them for what they are. Gifts from God. Now, to the elder for just a minute, what, what, what could I say? Remember, you're the means by which God calls people to himself. God's appointed means. What a privilege. Huh. Or maybe could you consider this, just briefly here as, a, as evidence of God's calling, you have this book in your hands, in your own language. It was written 2,000 years ago. Various parts of the world it was written in, Europe, around there mostly, Asia. You have, you have this book, and it wasn't originally written in English. 2,000 years ago, it was written down in, in Greek and, well, the older parts of it even, in Hebrew and Aramaic. And there's somebody in the world that God sent who loves Greek and who speaks English. And, and, and a bunch of them sat down and translated this so that you could have this book don't count it as a small or trivial thing. Here is the great evidence of the love of God that he gave us his words in a language that we could understand. It's closer and more significant than you think. Signs of God's love. Now, what other means does God use? Uh, the text speaks to us here about your belief in the truth, your faith. It says, uh, through he, he chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. When somebody came and told you or you read it in the Bible or a book, you believed it. It's the means by which God saves. It's the means by which you lay hold of the grace of God. I still remember listening to J. Dwight Pentecost. He was in his early 80s when he taught the last class I took from him at seminary and he would talk to us about his percolating coffee maker. He was an old man. He had a percolating coffee maker. He didn't have a Keurig ever in his life. He had a percolating coffee maker. And uh, he had this old percolating coffee maker, and the, the electric cord would uh, detach from the percolating uh, coffee maker so it was easy, more easily washed. And uh, he said every night before I go to bed, we put the coffee in the coffee maker, and um, you, you plug it in. Uh, you, have to plug, you take the cord and you plug it into the coffee maker and then into the outlet. And the cord is what connects the power 
to the percolating coffee maker. Your faith is what lays hold of the grace of God for your rescue, for your salvation. That's how you lay a hold of God's grace. What's wonderful about this thing called faith is that, it's, that faith is nothing but need expressed in the right direction. That's what faith is. It's need expressed in the right direction. It's not an accomplishment. It's not something that you manufacture. It's not produced only by people who are smart enough or talented enough or young enough or rich enough or attractive enough. It is need that is expressed toward God. I need to be rescued and I'm going to lay myself on Christ. The means by which God saves Now, the third of these means is in verse 13 also, and it talks there about the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. We're saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Paul's already seen this at work in the lives of the Thessalonians. He's he's seen their love for one another. He's seen the Spirit at work in their lives, transforming them. This is what God does for His people. You hear the Gospel, you believe the Gospel, the Spirit works in your life, all part of God's process of saving His people. In the second century after Christ, there was a man named Celsus who complained about the church. He was an opponent of Christianity. And listen to what he wrote. Jesus Christ came into the world to make the most horrible and dreadful societies. For he called sinners and not the righteous, so that the body he came to assemble is a body of profligates, separated from good people, among whom they before were mixed. He has rejected all the good and collected all the bad. This is criticism of Christianity. It's interesting, isn't it? It's an election in which we have started to use a new vocabulary word, not just to use the word uh, fact check. It's an election in which we've now used the word deplorable. Right? Collection of deplorables. What has Jesus come to do? Celsus argues all he does is collect deplorables. Uh, Now, Origen responded to this, and he said this, True, our Jesus came to call sinners, but to repentance. He assembles the wicked, but he converts them into new men, or rather, to change them into angels. We come to him covetous, he makes us generous. We come to him lascivious, he makes us chaste. We come to him violent, he makes us meek. We come to him impious, he makes us religious. Here's the means that God has ordained. Now here's the third action that God has uh, t- taken that should encourage you to persevere. He declares our future. He declares our future. Verse 14 says, He called you to this through our gospel so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I suppose we've moved on now from talking about the starting blocks to talking about the finish line, haven't we? <laughs> I guess. Paul's written about this back in, before, about sharing in the glory of Jesus. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, with his holy people, we're going to share in his glory. Or Colossians 3, 4, I've read this to you before, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Here is what it means to be saved. It means to become a sharer in the future glory of Jesus. And words like this appear all the way through the New Testament and they they function a bit like road signs on the highway. You've seen them. You drive down the highway and you see the signs. They're mostly blue. I think they're almost always blue. 
Uh, you're driving on a long trip and you need to stretch your legs a little bit or you've got a hankering for a candy bar or you have to go to the bathroom and you see a sign that says, rest area, 43 miles. And you think to yourself, okay, 43 miles, I'm going 60, that's like 43 minutes, I'm okay. Right? You keep going. You travel down the road and you see a happy reminder, rest stop, 22 miles. Woohoo! We're getting closer, getting closer. Rest stop, 10 miles, great. Two miles, one mile, exit here, and you pull off. Whew, blessed relief, right? And get out of this car. There are notes about glory all the way through the New Testament to remind you about it. If it let's think about um, not just miles, but let's think about years. Your, your time on earth as it extends the, the number of years towards glory gets lower and lower. Glory, 25 years. Glory, 15 years. Glory, it's coming in 10 years. If Jesus doesn't come before you meet him. Glory, two years. Maybe that's why we put a birthday candles on your birthday cake every year for every year you've been born. Because the older you get, the brighter your cake is because you're closer and closer to glory. (laughs) Right? Did you lose someone this year that you love? Uh, They they have to, what Paul says, they've fallen asleep in Jesus. Their present glory is your future as a follower of Jesus. Now, there's an incontrovertible law of highway rest areas. You know what the incontrovertible law is? If you want to get to them, you have to stay on the road. God has declared the future for those who are followers of Jesus Christ that we might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus. Now, finally here, what else does God do? He gives us grace. He gives us grace. Look at verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father... Oh, I should stop here for a minute. There's something I didn't mention about this text. It's pretty awesome. Do you notice how the Trinity is in this text here? Look at verse 13. You're loved by the Lord, chosen by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit. Verse 13. All three members of the Trinity involved in this. That's a precious thing not to pass too fast. And verse 16. Normally, Paul, when he prays like this, he starts with God the Father and he continues to Jesus Christ. Usually it starts, may our God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he talks about the Savior. Here in verse 16, he starts with Jesus, and he goes full throttle on all of his titles. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself. All these. Why? Because remember, this is a passage where Jesus is exalted above this pretender who's going to come, this man of lawlessness. Jesus is preeminent, and he gets first billing in this verse. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace, oh, he gave us grace. What form does this grace come? Eternal encouragement and good hope. I think that Paul is um, overlapping a little bit here in what he says. This is not uncommon for Paul. He gives us grace. And what is the grace? It's eternal encouragement. And I think the internal encouragement and good hope are the same thing. And they themselves are an echo of the glory that he's already promised. 
I think what's helpful here is the word eternal. It's eternal encouragement. It's going to outlast everything that you own or experience. God's encouragement, the hope he gives us, is going to last longer than your mortgage. It's going to outlast junior high. It's going to outlast your marriage. It's going to outlast your cancer. It's going to outlast your deep period of depression. It's eternal. You don't have anything else that is eternal except the gracious gift of God's encouragement. I think one of the points of this passage, one of the reasons that Paul uses this, is that he wants you to stretch your vision. He wants you to see He wants you to think long-term, back into what God has done and forward into what God promises. He wants you to extend, because when you are in the midst of difficulty, when you're in the midst of a trial, life gets so short and small. I had a job once, not here. I had a job once that I didn't like. Not here. A job once that I really didn't like. Um, And you know what? I used to think to myself when I'd say the weekend is not long enough to have a job that you don't like. Those two days are not enough compensation for, for a Monday through Friday of just, ugh. And when you have that, Wednesday just can't come soon enough, and it lasts forever, doesn't it? You just feel like this is going on and on and on, and that's actually all you can see is you can start to see just the hours slowly passing. Time gets, it's like listening to a sermon. It just goes on and on on. Paul wants you to be able to see beyond that. To have a long look. Eternal encouragement. We persevere because of all the things that God has done for us. Long term. A few weeks ago, I mentioned the gospel-inspired work of uh, William Wilberforce. Remember how William Wilberforce fought against the British slave trade? Before he died, John Wesley wrote William Wilberforce a letter. Listen to it. It's dated February 24, 1791. This is a letter he wrote. My dear sir, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. (laughs) What a way to describe the British slave trade. It's an execrable villainy. I'll keep going. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary in well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. That he who has guided you from your youth may continue to strengthen you in this and in all things is the prayer of, dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. What did John Wesley know? Did you hear this? He said, if God isn't with you, you will not be able to stand. John Wesley had a very big view of God's sovereign work in raising up William Wilberforce and he used it to push him forward. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't stop following God. 
Don't stop following Jesus Christ because of what God has done for you. Don't stop fighting those pernicious, deep-seated patterns of sin. Don't stop praying. Don't stop serving your neighbor. Don't stop giving to missions. Don't stop loving your children because of all that God has done. Remind one another of this. Tell your growth group about God's work in your life and how you see it. Make His work the frequent subject of your conversation. His grace pushes us forward, and that's why we keep going. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are thankful to you this morning that the Bible speaks to us realistically about the temptations that we face. And we confess, Father, there are moments when we all have been tempted to quit, been tempted to just give up on fighting sin or praying or reading and understanding your word or sharing the gospel with our family members. We, we're tempted toward this. We thank you that the Bible addresses it and it, it commands us to stand firm and to hold fast. I pray with the Apostle Paul this morning that our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and who gave us by his grace eternal encouragement and good hope that he would encourage our hearts and strengthen this congregation into every good deed and word. Do these things, Father, for the sake of your Son. We pray these together in his name. Amen.